Well, good afternoon. I am uh, Tim Shorey, one of the pastors here, uh, and it's my privilege this afternoon to minister God's Word, to speak in, uh, hopefully in a way that will help us to hear God's voice through the Scriptures. Uh, and so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, the book of James chapter 3, toward the end of the New Testament, if you're just getting familiar with your Bible, uh, James chapter 3, and we're going to read, uh, just break into the middle of this chapter at verse 5 and read down through verse 10. In the larger context here, James is addressing uh, issues of the tongue, the way we speak, the way we interact with each other, giving us all kinds of teaching, all kinds of warning, all kinds of counsel. And in the middle of that exhortation, that set of commands and pleas from James, we read in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, my sisters, these things ought not to be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this text, we read no man, no person, no human can tame the tongue. And if we take that out of context, Father, we would be immediately discouraged. We would be immediately in despair, think, well, what's the point of even trying? But Father, the whole context says that there is a wisdom and a grace that comes from above. That you are the one, dear Lord, the Father above who, who gives to us grace and help and strength to, to increasingly tame our tongues and turn our speech into that which is no longer a, a fire that ignites a forest, but turns our speech into healing and grace and help and strength for others. So, Father, as we begin this afternoon, we, we ask you to give us that wisdom from above. We can't do what you command us to do here, Father, but we can grow in it if you give us grace to obey. So, would you please come? Teach us by your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in, this is the fourth of five messages that we're doing on the topic of communication. I believe there is a uh, text number up there uh, on the slide that if you have any questions as we go through the message uh, today, feel free to text it in and at the end we'll take some time to uh, cover a few of the questions. If we don't get to your questions, uh, please feel free to ask us personally when you see us, either afterwards or via email or some other way, and we'll make sure that we try to answer your questions as best we can. Well, we have, like I say, we have done three. This is our fourth in five messages, and we're taking the word communicate, and that word is forming for us the uh, the, the framework on which we are building this series of messages. Each letter in the word communicate stands for the next principle or commandment of communication. If you haven't been here for previous messages, as you go out the door to the right, there's a table with all the previous uh, outlines from this together with a folder that you can take to collect them all in. And if you didn't get today's notes, anybody not get today's? 
Okay, we have, we have two people. If ushers are available, keep your hands up if you would, and the ushers will get those to you. Uh, and as those are arriving, uh, we have gone through the letter I in communicate, um, and one right up here, brother, and one right over there. Thanks, Dave. What, let's review. Anybody here can do them all? Anybody can do them? C stands for chill. O, open up. M, make time. M, mean what you say. U, understand what you hear. N, nourish with grace. I, initiate peace. And now, today we're going to do three more, and then next week, finish it up. Today, celebrate others, assume you are wrong, think the best, and examine your heart. Now, I hope, I hope we see as we work through these principles that they are not just a matter, communication biblically is not just a matter of getting the words right or, or getting the actions right or the externals right. It's really a matter of getting the heart right. As you, as you think about the points that we have already talked about, to chill, to, to tone it down, to not explode, is, is really to exercise self-control, a, a powerful reigning in and mastery of our emotional reactions with the help of Christ and to imitate the gentleness of Christ or to open up is to be so secure in Jesus' love and acceptance that we can become courageously transparent and vulnerable in talking with others. To make time is to be unselfish with our lives, to prioritize others, to be more eager to invest our time and our resources in others than we are in our own ambitions. To mean what we say is to be honest and trustworthy. To understand what we hear is to show respect and care for others and what they have to say and what's on their hearts. To nourish with grace is simply to be helpful, to be strengthening, to be kind. To initiate peace is to be like Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, the great peacemaker himself. Today we're going to see that to celebrate others and assume we are wrong and think the best about others, these two are expressions of Christ-like love and care. So let's, let's dig into them. Let's, let's look at these three. First of all for today, celebrate others. Celebrate others, or you could put in parentheses another C word, cut out the put-downs. Celebrate others, parentheses, cut out the put-downs. This point is this. We need to have a heart of respect and gratitude and love for others that wants to build into them an awareness of the fact that they are made in the image of God and as such they are capable of great good. We want to celebrate others in such a way that we remind them with our words and with our attitudes that they are made in the image of God with a capacity for great goodness and even glory. Look at James chapter 3 and verse 9. With it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. goes on to say, we shouldn't do this. Curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We should rather celebrate people who are made in the likeness of God. There, there is a profound truth here. We are made in the likeness of God. We are made in the image of God. I have to confess that as a pastor, I believe this truth didn't get as much airtime in my ministry in the early years as it should have. This is an astonishing truth, my friends. 
We, we are created, we are made in the image of God. That means that there is the likeness of God stamped on us. There is God-likeness. We are a reflection of God. I know in my own ministry, I, I very, very often presented the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in terms of there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is what? We're sinners. The bad news is we're broken. The bad news is that we deserve the judgment of God. The good news is what? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came to redeem us from our sins and the hell we deserve. But what I, what I overlooked for many years in my ministry was that really it's a good news, bad news, good news message. The first good news is this. We are made in the image of God. In Adam and Eve, we were made for glory. We were made for majesty. We were made to reflect God. We were made to shine out in this world and in God's universe reflections, aspects, facets of who He is. That's good news. That means when you look in the mirror, you're not looking at a, a piece of dust. You're not looking at a worm. You're not looking at a dirt bag. You're not looking at a warthog. You, you are looking at a creature made in the image of God. That is really good news. That means everyone in this room is a reflection of the being and the glory and the goodness of God. Now the bad news is that in Adam and Eve, we twisted that and distorted that because Adam and Eve and us in him, them and us ever since, we don't like being just like God. We want to be God. We want to take God's place. And all the sin and all the junk and all the garbage that's in the world is the result of the fact that we were not content to reflect God. We wanted His throne. We wanted to call the shots. We wanted to be our own God, and so we dethroned Him, we defamed Him, we defaced His image, and the bad graffiti of our sins and our words and our cho choices have now marred the image of God. But it's still there. But it's still there. It doesn't take it away. James says, do not curse people because they are made in the likeness of God. So the good news is made to be like God. Bad news is twisted all of that, distorted all of that, threw God off His throne. The good news is Christ came into the world to redeem us and to restore us to the glory for which we were made. To, to, to renew in us, to, re, to, to remake us, to redeem us, to reclaim us, to restore us so that we can be all of that for which we are created. But in the meantime, as, as imperfect as it is, as flawed as it is, and as we are, the reality is that when you look in the mirror, you were seeing somebody who was made with a certain measure of goodness and glory. And so is everyone else in this room. And so James says, if that is true, you better not curse each other. When we cuss each other out, in effect, we are cussing God out. Because we are made in God's image. I don't know about you, but that puts the fear of God into me. Just as our firstborn was about to be born 39 years ago, I read a book on parenting. And in the book, it made the point that we as parents need to remember that this little bundle of cuteness that turns into a bundle of Dirty diapers and runny noses is made in the image of God. And that little bundle of whatever then later turns into a teenage bundle of... Yeah, you get it, all right? Whatever that is. 
But whatever that is, it's still made in the image of God. And the exhortation of the book was, therefore, never curse or name call or belittle or badger or abuse that which is made in the image of God. And my parenting world was rocked before it even began. I knew that no matter what my eventual six children might say or do, I was called on to respect them as my equal. As one who is made in the image of God as much as I am. And they weren't born to reflect my image. They were born to reflect His. They weren't born to be my legacy. They were born to be God's eternal legacy. They weren't born for my praise. They were born for His praise. They weren't born to reflect Tim Shorey. They were born to reflect the goodness and the greatness of God. And so I must rev- almost reverence them. Certainly respect them in such a way that I do not tear them down. I do not badmouth them. In chapter 4 and verse 11, James tells us that we are not to speak evil of each other. In chapter 5 and verse 9, we are told not to grumble against each other. We are not to cut each other down. We are not to badger each other and beat each other up with our words. Human beings, even if, even if those human beings are enemies of ours, they are still creatures to be celebrated, not berated. They are, they are human, and to be human is to be honored, not slandered, to be respected, not dissected, to be esteemed, not demeaned, to be held in honor and awe not in contempt or disdain. A human is to be looked at with a certain sense of wonder, not mocked at in scorn. Oh, my friends, we must avoid everything in our conversations and communication with each other, whether it's with a little toddler or whether it's with a 90-something-year-old. We must be marked by respect and carefulness with how we speak because we are speaking to those in the words of C.S. Lewis who are destined to be everlasting splendors. Oh, how careful we should be. But it's not just enough to cut out the put-downs. We need to celebrate each other. We need to honor each other. The Bible is never content with just don't do this. The Bible always wants us to do something. Romans chapter 12, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Give honor to whom honor is due. So here's here's a little poetry moment for you if you're taking notes. The main point in that little section where the blank is there is a poetry moment. Take moments with each human being to celebrate the grace you're seeing. Take moments with each human being to celebrate the grace you're seeing. Take moments with each human being to celebrate the grace you're seeing and while you're at it, cut the scorn, the slicing words by which we're torn. And while you're at it, cut the scorn the slicing words by, by which we're torn. We should turn every conversation into a celebration. In every relationship across every line of disagreement, difference, division, we should cultivate a culture of encouragement and respect. So as you're talking with others, look for evidences of God's grace in their life. Look for the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Look for the gifts of the Spirit in their life. Look for the evidence of God's blessing through their ministry and through their life. Look for ways they've grown. Look for skills they have. Look for attitudes that are positive. Look for how they are living in such a way as to bring glory to God. Notice it. Call attention to it. Celebrate it to them. Celebrate others. Celebrate what God is doing. Oh, 
oh, that this would be a church, and oh, that all of our homes and all of our families and all of our relationships would be marked by this. This is a people who is, who is an encouraging people. This is a congregation where people get celebrated, where conversations are celebrations, where pe- the image of God is honored in one another. See is celebrate others. Secondly, for today, assume you are wrong. Assume you are wrong. This one always blows people's minds because they're so sure they're right. Assume you are wrong. In every disagreement, in every conflict, in every argument, assume you are wrong. We'll try this. It's a little distracting. I know why that happened. It's, it's perspiration is getting it. Oh, man. I have ruined so many microphones that way. James chapter 3 and verse 17. Listen to these words. The wisdom from above. This is the communication wisdom, relationship wisdom that comes from above. Is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Did you see that phrase, open to reason? James tells us that if we have the wisdom that comes from above, we will be open to reason. What that means is that we will be willing to yield, which means that we can be persuaded, which means that we are teachable, which means that we know we have at least something to learn, which means that we know that we are at least partially ignorant, which means that we are at least partly wrong. To be open to reason means that you assume that you are at least partly wrong in every disagreement and conversation. And friends, once you learn that, everything changes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols is in your notes. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. I love it. I love Paul's blunt line. If you think you know something, you don't know anything. He who thinks he knows is showing his ignorance. She who thinks she has all the answers is showing that she has very little understanding. Proverbs 12 and verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, this is counterintuitive, isn't it, folks? This goes against how we're, we're wired. What it means is that in every conversation, I assume ignorance. I assume somebody's wrong, and I'm assuming it's me. That's counterintuitive because if there's one thing we think we are right about, it's those things that we think. If we didn't think we were right about what we think, I don't think we'd think it. That does make sense if you followed it. But, but what the Bible teaches us, folks, is that we are to doubt ourselves. 
That's, that's, that's counterintuitive. That's counter-everything in our culture. We are to doubt ourselves. If there's a disagreement, if there's a conflict, doubt yourself. Assume you are wrong. Here's, here's the main point, point in poetry form. I'm likely wrong. Let us assume. And by this, give the truth some room. I'm likely wrong. Let us assume. And by this, give the truth some room. Humility acknowledges I don't have all the facts. Humility acknowledges the facts I do have, I have probably misinterpreted. Humility acknowledges that what I think I see in others, done by others, is probably misread and misunderstood by me. Humility recognizes that it is almost certainly wrong. The older you get, the easier this is to know. I heard years and years ago a teenager say something like this. A teenager is someone who knows not, but he knows not that he knows not. Well, the older you get, the more you realize you know not. Unless you're a willful, deliberate, stubborn, blind-to-yourself type of person. I have never had a disagreement with Galen, never had an argument with Galen in which I was not at least partly wrong. Every single conversation, every single disagreement, at least partly wrong. Wrong in my tone, wrong in my interpretation, wrong in my words, wrong in my attitude, wrong somewhere. I have never in 40 plus years of married life, there's never been once when I've been 100% right, it has become very easy for me to assume I'm wrong. And it's not because she proves me wrong. It's just that I'm always partly wrong. And something changes in relationships when, in fact, we recognize this. Wayne Dyer, in a quote that's in your outline, has written this. Did you ever notice how difficult it is to argue with somebody who is not obsessed with being right? You ever noticed how hard it is to argue with somebody who is not obsessed with being right? If you're in a disagreement and you and or if you and the other person are not obsessed with being right, oh, the heat and emotion go out of the argument and it then becomes a conversation. Oh, for the humility to not presume I'm right and not need to be right. And if we had that kind of humility, we would not fall victim to the temptation to have the last word. You ever noticed how strong that temptation is? You're in a disagreement and in a debate and in an argument. You just want to get that last zinger in, that last statement that in your mind proves you right and them wrong. That crazy craving to have the last word is simply one other expression of an insistence on being right. The Scriptures call us to a different kind of lifestyle in which we assume that we're wrong. We assume that we're wrong. And then finally, for today, T, think the best. Think the best. I want you to notice something over in chapter 5 of, verse, of the book of James and verse 11. Chapter 5 and verse 11. We read, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, what I want you to notice is that description of Job. God is inspiring James to write this letter. 
And God moves James to describe the steadfastness, the persevering patience of Job. Now, why is that surprising? Because if you read the story of Job in the Old Testament, steadfast perseverance and patience are not exactly what you would think of with Job. He did persevere. He did press through. But along the way, there were lots of complaints. And along the way, there were times when he wanted to quit. There were times when he wished he had never been born. There were times when he wished he had anybody and everybody else's life but, but his own. There were, there were times when his life was not marked by patience, not marked by perseverance. And yet, God looking down on Job recognized, saw, identified, and commended the patience of Job. This is, a, this is an example of God's amazing grace to us, God's, God's mercy to us, the way He thinks the best about us, if I can put it that way. He, he, he sees the good in us. He, he commends us. Remember Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. Why? For they do not know what they are doing. What what is Jesus doing there? He is thinking the best about people who are doing the absolute worst thing that's ever been done. He is recognizing that what these men are doing right now in nailing me to the cross, in mocking me, it is not done completely out of an evil heart. There is ignorance here. They don't know what they're doing. And he reads it charitably. He, he judges them mercifully. Oh, that we could be like God in this. Oh, that we would think the best about each other. Oh, that we would, in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, believe all things and, and interpret each other's words and actions, not in the worst possible way, but in the best possible way. What a difference it would make in our marriages. What a difference in our church. What a difference in our, in our relationships across racial lines and cultural lines and economic lines if we would stop always reading the worst into the actions of others and try to understand, try to think through the best intentions that people have. This is how we want to be treated by others. This is golden rule stuff right here, folks. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So let me summarize it like this. Before we jump to think the worst, before we jump to think the worst, believe the best, judge kindly first. Before we jump to think the worst, believe the best, judge kindly first. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. I want you to, and I may have used this illustration before. If I have, forgive me. Um, I want you to imagine yourself on the blue route, and uh, you're coming home from work or going to work, and you're driving along, and you're minding your own business, and all of a sudden, this car comes on, you know, on the blue route, comes on the on-ramp, and I'm sure this never happened to any of you, and it pulls in front of you, and it goes about 20 miles below the speed limit. And, and I know the grace of God is such on your life that you smile. You, you just thank God for the moment. Now, what happens? You get mad. What happens? You, you get as close to them as you possibly can. You tailgate. What happens? You honk the horn. Hopefully you don't do any worse than that. This is just, uh, you know. Here's what you have to remind yourself of. That, that person who was driving that car that pulled in front of you was not waiting on the on-ramp for you to come along. 
it, it, it wasn't as if they, they hung there for an extra four minutes because they saw you coming and then waited for just the right time where they could pull in front of you and then intentionally go 20 miles under the speed limit to drive you nuts. That's, people don't do that. How many of you have ever been the car on the on-ramp? How many of you have ever had somebody mad at you because you were slowing them down? Come on. <laughs> we got to go back to truth-telling parts of this. <laughs> Some of you are just either blind to the truth or... It's happened to all of us. We have all done really foolish things on the road. How do you feel when a person gets mad at you for your mistakes? You're a good man. <laughs> Most of us get mad at them for getting mad at us. And we say something like, Hey, man, I didn't mean to do that. That was a mistake. Sorry, I didn't notice you were there. I thought I had more distance, you know, or, or I was thinking about some, this is what's going on in our mind. I was just thinking about the conversation I had with my wife at home or the trouble we're having with our child, and, and I, I got distracted. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Right? That's what We want people to judge us charitably because it wasn't as if we were sitting there intentionally making their life miserable. Think the best. Think the best. Put a charitable read on the words and the actions of others. So many illustrations of this that we could give, but I think you get the point. I think you get the point. I am so grateful. As I was thinking about these points this morning and all this accumulation of communication principles, made me think of Jesus. He, he was the one, the only one in the history of the world who could assume that he was never wrong. The only one who ever got it all right. The only one who never did or said anything wrong and yet was willing to be treated as if he was the wrong doer so that we could be treated as if we are right. He was, he was willing to take all the punishment for our wrongdoing, every sinful word, every sinful attitude, every time we've communicated badly. He's taken all of that on himself. He was treated as wrong so that we could be treated as right, so that we could be accepted by God. Isn't that amazing? Here is the grace of God. Here is the love of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. And though we were poor in all of our junk and in all of our sin, He has made us rich in His righteousness and in His forgiveness by becoming poor Himself, being treated as if He was the worst wrongdoer of all time, taking all, all of the sins of everybody in this room and all God's people throughout all of time, taking them on himself and becoming accursed for us on the cross, that we would become righteous and forgiven and accepted by God in his sight. Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you, but that motivates me to be like Jesus. I want to be the kind of person who in my communication and relationships is Jesus-like. So I want to chill. I want to open up. I want to make time. I want to mean what I say and understand what I hear and nourish with grace and initiate peace, and celebrate others, and assume I'm wrong. In his case, he assumed our wrongs. I want to think the best. Next week, we'll think, examine the heart. Oh, that God would give us grace to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you please write these things on our heart. Make us like the Savior. Out of love, 
out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. Create in us, Lord, clean hearts. Create in us, Lord, a culture and a climate of grace in which these principles become more than just words on the page, more than just points of a sermon, that these principles become life for us. Would you please, Lord, transform us individually and in our families and in the church? In Jesus' name, amen. some time for questions this afternoon. Um, I was getting a little concerned, actually. Nobody was sending in questions. And then I think as you were praying, we got a couple questions in. <laughs> okay, first one. Uh, God calls us to be fruit inspectors. Yeah, when you feel a coworker has evil intentions and has had a negative track record, is it okay not to communicate and just pray? Choose your battles. Does this thinking work best with unbelievers? That, that reflects a question that was asked last week about uh, forbearance. In the Bible, we're, talk to, we're told to forbear, to bear with each other. What that, what that means is that there are times when the things that others do that may in some way inconvenience us, may in some small way offend us or grieve us, Remember the proverb says, love covers a multitude of sins. There's, there's a lot of things we ought to just show forbearance for, whether at home or in the church or in the workplace, things that are just not big things. They're not, they're not things that ought to, ought to get in the way of our relationship or get under our skin, and we just need to let them roll off our back and, and move on. But if there's something at work or is there something at home that goes beyond just a mistake or goes beyond just an occasional, you know, flaw or, or foible in another person. And it's actually a sin or it, it's not just one sin. It may be a pattern of sins. It's, it's something that's happening regularly. There comes a point at which you need to open up with that person uh, you need to talk it out or else it will be a source of bitterness on your inside. A couple of fair rules of thumb, whether at home or work or anywhere, are one, um, you need to open up if it's a pattern of misbehavior, not just a one-time deal or a one-off thing, but a, a pattern of misbehavior or sin uh, that, is, that is just creating tensions in the home or in work, um, and, and if it is affecting your relationship with that person, you need to go and talk to that person. So, and there are gracious ways to do that. You don't do that accusingly. You don't say, hey, you did this wrong. You, you go humbly. You go not, you go assuming that you're wrong, assuming that your interpretation and your, your perspective is at least distorted. It's not perfect. Go assuming that you're at least partly wrong. Go humbly. Go expressing it as a perception rather than an accusation. As something that you think may be happening rather than a judgment of what is happening. Go humbly and go gently and go patiently. And I think God will, God will help you. Maybe I can just add... Um I think if the person you're dealing with is a believer, and we have principles in Matthew 18, if a brother has sinned against you, then go to that person directly. And then if, if they don't listen, then bring along one or two others so every uh, you know, issue can be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there's a whole process Jesus outlines, outlines for us. Now, if it's the other person who is um, being so difficult and uh, is not a believer, well, then you know, I think similar principles apply. You go directly to them, but then you, you go through, you know, if it's a coworker, you will go through the, the normal channels of authority, you know, so you go to the person directly, and if they don't seem to be listened, well, at that point, you go to the supervisor, and then, you know, you go through the appropriate authority structures that God has set up in place, and then at the end of the day, if, you know, if, if you're not getting justice, you have to entrust the situation to the Lord's hands, 
I think that's that's what we're all called to do as Christians. Yeah, I think I would I would add too that the 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 scriptures are really clear. In fact, in a couple of weeks when we get back to the Sermon on the Mount and the idea of of not returning evil for evil and turning the cheek when somebody slaps you on one cheek, the principle of non-retaliation is is a clear biblical principle so that when even when evil great evil is done against us and consistently done against us that doesn't justify us returning evil for evil that's when we're called on uh, to return good for evil and overcome evil with good and to love our enemies and to give a cup of water to our enemies uh, so that we can overcome evil with, with good. So there's, uh, for unbelievers, there is this, this um, posture of patience and grace and humility. doesn't mean you can't talk about it or confront it humbly, uh, but it with unbelievers, the likelihood that you're going to have to return good for evil is far higher. And uh, you need to ask God to give you grace for that. And he will. He will. So that's all for today. Did you want to take questions from last week that we didn't get to? One, that, one, one other question from last week. What do we got? Five minutes. Uh, one other question that was asked last week was, remember we talked about mean what you say? That was last week, or was that two weeks ago? doesn't matter. Mean what you say, and I gave you some examples of things that we say that we really don't mean, um, like never and always. Remember those words? Um, somebody asked uh, about the words, I'm sorry, and that's okay. And do people use those words not really meaning those words? And I'm seeing heads go up and down because you all know that people do. So somebody offends you and hurts your feelings and you're upset and they come to you and say, I'm sorry. And you just very quickly say, that's okay. And the likelihood is that neither one of you meant what you said. The likelihood is that they're not really sorry. They are aware that there's tension in the air. They are aware that something's not right in the relationship. And they just figure, we have this cultural way of doing this, that what I'm supposed to say at a time like that is, I'm sorry. And somehow or other, magically, the other person is supposed to say, that's okay. And then you both walk away having just lied to each other. Because the first one is not really sorry. They're unhappy because there's tension in the air, but they are not sorry. They are not feeling sorrow over something that they have done wrong against you. They're feeling sadness because there's tension. And that's okay is maybe even a bigger lie. Because you know full well in your heart, you're still mad, you're, you're still upset, you're still angry, but this is the cultural thing to say at a moment like this, and so uh, that's okay. And then you both walk away having made believe that you've made peace when all you've done is pushed the conflict down a little further, and it will explode at some point in the future. There's a much better biblical way, folks, but it's much more humbling. It goes like this. If I sin against Galen, I am to go to her and I am to confess my sin. I am to say, hun, that anger that I just showed, that impatience that I just expressed, that sarcasm that I just used was disrespectful to you and unloving towards you. Would you please forgive me for my sin? That's biblical confession. And then, what's forgiveness? Well, what's God's forgiveness for you? He will remember your sins no more. What does that mean? Does it mean he forgets them? 
No, God can't forget anything. He knows everything. It means he will never remember them against you again. He will never bring them up against you again. It is done. It's a part of the past. It no longer affects your relationship with God. That's what we are doing when we give forgiveness to each other. We are saying that from this point on, I'm making a promise and if I confess my sin to Galene and my offenses to her, and she says, Tim, I forgive you, she is making a promise to never bring that up against me again. Now, if I go ahead and do it again tomorrow, then fresh forgiveness is needed. I can't say to her tomorrow, hey, you forgave me yesterday. No. Fresh, forgive, fresh confession is needed. Fresh forgiveness is needed. Let's get away from the cheap, meaningless words, I'm sorry, that's okay. And let's get to some really meaningful words. I have sinned against you. Will you please forgive me for my sin? And yes, I do forgive you. Even as Jesus has forgiven me for all of my sin, I forgive you for what you've done to me. Then you walk away healed. Then you walk away secure in that relationship because authentic confession and authentic forgiveness has been exchanged. And I am sure the Father smiles from heaven when he says, that's like me. That's how I forgive. My children are forgiving each other like that. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father, would you please write these things deeply in our hearts? For, Lord, these are, these are hard lessons to learn, but oh, so sweet and oh, so rich and oh, so deepening and strengthening to our relationships. Oh, Father, would you please teach us, teach our hearts these things in Jesus' name. Amen.